The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. We read in Psalm 119 that God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And today's passage will radiate resplendently because we live in a moment of significant darkness in these matters. Today's passage is without question countercultural. God is speaking in ways that are not the way that our culture thinks. Also, to be fair, sadly, on the other side, some very wicked people have abused a passage like this one to mistreat women in the name of a passage like this one. And so there is darkness on both sides, bad examples on both sides. So let's let God's word clarify and illumine the path that we should walk. I'm reminded that the Bible is written by God. God is good. God is wise. God is just. God is love. God is holy. Jesus said in John 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. And they follow me. This morning, let's make sure we hear the voice of our good shepherd through this passage. Elizabeth Elliot wrote an incredibly good chapter called The Essence of Femininity. Strongly encourage you to read it. I'll quote her a couple times today. In it, she said this, We must and do deplore the stereotypes that caricature the divine distinctions between male and female. We deplore the abuses perpetrated by men against women and women against men, for all have sinned. But have we forgotten the archetypes, the original design of what God created? This morning's text will share that with us. The title of today's sermon is God's Structure for Gender Roles in the Church. I always want to be the kind of church that you need a Bible in your hand. And so if you need the Pew Bible, it is page 1,178. Please have the Bible open, because our whole sermon will interact with what God has actually said. So 1,178 in your Pew Bible. My, my goal whenever I preach is to be um, as, as simple as I can. So I try to slow down and be clear and concise. Today's text, because it touches on things that are so culturally uh, opposed, I'll be a little more technical than I normally am. Now, about 10% of you would want to be even more technical than that, and I've written a 74-page sermon <laughs> that you can read on your own and follow the footnotes. So, And I mean that in all seriousness. If you're wondering what the other side of scholarship holds, my, my footnotes have it, okay? And you can run with it. So today's passage... Um, is so needed for us, isn't it? What was once recognized as reality by the simplest of children now needs to be explained to the most highly educated adults. Here in 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 15, God tells us what is to be true in our church. And the implications are beyond that, but remember the focus is the church. We, we were actually supposed to read out loud together today, 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 15. Hopefully you're starting to memorize those verses. These things have I written unto you so that you would know how you ought to behave in the church, in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. And so this is primarily the church that we're talking about. Now, if you have a bulletin or if you downloaded my notes online, we are now under part one, instructions for men in church worship, and that is verse eight. Okay, here's what God tells Men in particular, verse 8. I desire, I hope you don't read that as I hope, because it's actually the Greek word bulamai, it's the strong one, I compel, I command, that in every place the men should pray. Now the phrase in every place is used by Paul to refer to every church. So I, I desire that in every church men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Notice the focus here is how these men ought to pray. They ought to pray in a certain manner. And he uses an idiom that is uh, Semitic. He says, with holy hands. The first time you, you, you read that, you might actually think he means literally raise your hand, which there's nothing wrong with that. There's seven postures in the Bible in which people pray, and raising the hands is one of them. But this is actually a Semitic idiom about your purity, 
We have a, an idiom sort of similar in, in English. We say, if you're a thief, you might get caught red-handed. And by that phrase, we mean you'll be caught doing something you shouldn't be doing. Here, this phrase means holy hands, meaning a holy life, a sincere heart is the idea. Even if you don't know idioms, though, the, the following words make it clear, without anger or quarreling. So Paul's desire is that men will pray in church and they'll pray with a certain manner. Now, this is actually still very relevant for us because men can be known for contentiousness and combativeness. In fact, in some cultures, that's thought of as masculine. Here, though, God makes clear that men who are holy men should be known for being conciliatory and peaceful. They're not angry. They're not combative. These are the kinds of men who ought to pray publicly in front of the church because men like that will show us Jesus. And men like that will make the verses that follow much easier to actually occur because they deal with the gender relationships between males and females. So when males are peaceable and conciliatory, those are the kinds of males who should lead the church publicly in prayer because they then set the model of how Christ himself is. Emmanuel, we are blessed with men like that. And let us pray for many more that will lead our church in prayer with the character of Christ. I am I, raising a little girl, and so an article caught my eyes a couple of weeks ago. It's written by Jeremy Pierre, a, a professor whom I know. And, and the title of the article is, A Call to Raise Daughters Wise to Domestic Abuse. In the article, he talks about males who have character that's actually sinful, though it may seem culturally as assertive. He gives five really helpful nuances. The first one is, a good man is humble, not insecure. Those is, are not the same, actually. Number two, a good man is strong, not defensive, also not the same. Number three, a good man will repent, not merely apologize. Those are not the same thing. Number four, a good man will lead, not demand. And number five, a good man may disagree with you, but he will not belittle you. These five actually come pretty close to what Paul is talking about here, about the kind of men who should lead the church in prayer. Now, you could ask, should only men pray? Well, the Greek word here is andros, not anthropos. It's the specific term for males, not the general term for mankind. So he's talking about males, the gender of males praying. Of course, this doesn't mean women cannot pray. They do in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5, and they do in Acts 4. But this is talking about males leading the church publicly in prayer, as the verses that follow will make clear. All right, now, one more thing you might be thinking this morning. Only verse 8's on men, and verses 9 through 15 are all on women. That seems imbalanced. How do we make sense of that? Let me give some answers. One is there is a historical issue Paul's addressing, but there's something more than that that's much more simple. Chapter 3 is about males. So it works out really well in God's providence that next Sunday is Father's Day because the next chapter we'll be in is chapter 3, and chapter 3 talks about how males ought to behave, particularly in leadership roles. Also, though, and we'll get here by the end, this focus on women is going to show us what happens when men fail to lead as they ought. Okay, So now we look to part two, which I know is happening quickly. Now it's going to be on ladies, but it's on ladies for the remainder of today's text. Beginning in verse 9, this is letter A on the handout. A Christian woman's focus in the church in particular, is it on attire or on godliness? Look in verse 9. The word likewise carries over the same imperative verb. Likewise, God's command for women, particularly in the church, is that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. I'm going to break down each word just because today's verse could be confusing. The word respectable means appropriate as fitting the occasion. And remember, the occasion here in particular is gathered worship. There are principles that may apply to the beach or to the gym, but the focus here is the church gathered. The next word is modestly, which means to be decent. The Greek lexicon says it is a self-conscious timidity. 
representing oneself in a worthy manner. The next word is self-control, which is a reasonableness and restraint. The opposite would be self-attention or self-assertiveness. Now, the last phrases in the verse are perhaps the most confusing because we wonder, does Paul literally mean it's wrong to braid your hair? We have braided hair, gold, pearls, costly attire. But these descriptions are more understandable if we understand the cultural backdrop. And let me say, as someone who's moved across the country recently, two years ago, that cultural backdrop is an important thing to learn. When I had been in Raleigh, only a month we were at a park, and at the back of the park I saw an older woman looking at her daughter, and her finger was right in her face, and she said to her daughter, stop being ugly. And I'm from the north, and I didn't know what that meant. (laughs) And so I thought, she is such a beautiful girl, why are you? And then my wife explained, she means ugly in her behavior, right? Also from the north, I moved down here, and someone said, well, you know, just bless their heart. And I thought, that is the sweetest phrase I've ever heard. And I've now learned if they say, Pastor, bless your heart, I better buckle up, because we're in for a ride, right? So knowing cultural background is very, very important. Let me quote uh, the New Testament scholar, R. Kent Hughes. He explains the cultural background. Paul is not categorically forbidding women to style their hair or wear jewelry or nice clothing. Actually, he's forbidding the imitation of the elaborate hairstyles and extravagant dress of the Roman court depicted on Roman coins in circulation at that time. These styles connoted the excessive luxury and licentiousness of the Roman court. Today, it's the equivalent of warning Christians away from the imitation of styles set by promiscuous pop stars or actresses. So that's actually the principle of what Paul is doing here. Let me continue quoting Hughes. Paul's concern is that Christians deport themselves in a way that does not detract but enhances their gospel mission. Remember the verses that precede, verses 1 through 7, God's heart desire for people to be saved. Jesus, who came as a ransom, the only mediator between God and men. And what Paul is saying here is the way men pray and the way women dress can enhance or detract from the gospel. So the point is that we must never detract from the beauty of Christ. And the way we dress could do that. Now, some of you are wired in such a way that you would want a specific dress code. Pastor, tell me exactly what's allowed and not allowed. There's no appendix, there's no concordance, there's no hidden Greek that tells us that, which is important to say because God, in his wisdom, has left it to us to grow in discernment. Philippians 1 actually says, this is my prayer, that your love may abound in more knowledge and more discernment so that you may discern what is best. Anytime God purposefully omits something, it's on purpose. And it's so that we can learn to develop our discernment so that we can live more wisely in all of life's areas that require it. If, however, you really do want more specific Counsel, there's a book I'll recommend you. It's called Worldliness by C.J. Mahaney. And in it, there are two appendices written by his wife and daughters. And they talk especially to women as women about how we should think about our dress. Make sure you get the original copy because when Crossway reprinted it, they forgot to print the appendices. But I have both in my office. In their appendix, though, here are some questions that I think are helpful. As women, they ask this, what statement do my clothes make about my heart In choosing what clothes to wear, whose attention do I desire? And with whom am I consciously identifying when I select my dress? Verse 10 tells us why this matters. Let's continue in verse 10. Women should not draw attention to themselves inappropriately through their dress, but now verse 10, instead of that, contrast him with that. But with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. First Peter 3 is worth reading. It says in verse 3, Do not let your adorning be external, the braining of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, those passages, 1 Peter 3 and 1 Timothy 2, are specifically speaking to women as females. There are principles, of course, that should guide men, but God is specifically speaking to females. Why? 
The New Testament scholar George Knight writes this, Adornment and dress is an area with which women are often concerned. It is a good thing because God created women to make things beautiful, but it is an area in which there are dangers of immodesty or indiscretion. C.J. Mahaney is a pastor. He's pastored for years, and in his church, one day after hearing a text like this one, a woman wrote out a testimony and shared it to the whole church, and here's how her testimony began. When choosing what to wear, I formerly thought only of what would flatter me, what would bring more attention my way, and what most resembled the clothes I saw on models or other stylish women. I wanted to be accepted and admired for what I wore. I enjoyed my attire, the undue attention I received, and the way it stimulated my feelings. Now, we know in our culture that this temptation is one that is especially geared in advertisement towards women. Um, There's a woman named Joanne Jacobs Brumberg, and in 1998, which feels like a a long time ago now, she wrote a book called The, The Body Project, An Intimate History of American Girls. She teaches at Cornell University. She's the professor of gender studies there. I wouldn't recommend all of the book, but uh, what she does that I think is interesting is she records diaries of girls for over 100 years. Here's what an American girl wrote in her diary, a teenage girl, in 1892. Ready? Here's what she wrote. Resolved not to talk about myself or feelings, to think before speaking, to work seriously, to be restrained in conversation and actions, not to let my thoughts wander, to be dignified, to interest myself more in others. One hundred years later, in the 1990s, here's what a teenage girl wrote in her diary. I will try to make myself better in any way I possibly can with the help of my budget and babysitting money. I will lose weight, get new lenses, already got new haircut, good makeup, new clothes, and accessories. Now that shift from inner beauty to external prettiness is exactly what Paul is warning us from. Now I want to teach two words to you, and I'm going to beg with you that you keep these words separate. Here's what they are. Beauty and pretty. Okay? Beauty and pretty. Philosophers have really helped me here. I'll just try to be really simple today. Beauty and pretty. The word pretty we should use if we're describing an airbrushed cover model. The word beauty we should use if we're talking about a child with Down syndrome. The word pretty we should use if we're describing something that fades. The word beauty we should use if we're describing something that lasts. The word pretty we should use if we're talking about our cultural values which change every couple minutes. The word beauty we should use if we're talking about something tied to truth and goodness. Pretty describes what fallen finite sinners value at a given point in time. Beauty describes when God is the beholder, what he sees as eternally precious. Pretty is a philandering 40-year-old character on a sitcom. Beauty is a husband and wife who've been married 60 years. Keep beauty and pretty separate in your thinking. Let me apply specifically in light of that. If you're here this morning and you're single, and perhaps you're desiring to marry, desiring to date, do not look for someone who is pretty. Wait for someone who is beautiful. They will be harder to find. Proverbs tells us in chapter 11, verse 22, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a pretty woman without discretion. It's a powerful text. It's trying to help us make this distinction. If you're married, please hear me as a pastor who very often has to lament over this failure. If you're married, never let your eye wander to someone who you find pretty or who you think is easy. Delight in the beauty of persevering in the hard work of marriage with your spouse. If you're a parent, do not raise your children to be pretty. Raise them to be beautiful. If you're a grandparent, don't tell your grandkids how pretty they are. Teach them to be beautiful. And this is much harder to do in the 21st century when we have screens than it was in the first century 
when Paul wrote this. I'll try to illustrate this. Two Fridays ago, I got to work in the morning, and the taskbar in my computer told me it was National Donut Day. (laughs) So after a couple quick minutes of research, I figured out they were giving out free donuts, and we took a staff field trip to Krispy Kreme. (laughs) When we got down there on P Street and we walked in, uh, I said, you know, I was kind of timid. You know, how does this thing work? Uh, She said, what can I do for you? And I said, are there free donuts today? And she said, there are. And so there's this moment where you're looking through glass and you see all these incredibly beautiful things and you're trying to keep saliva in your mouth and you make a selection. Now, you do that without thinking about it, and it's impersonal, and it's something for you to consume. But ever since television screens, which are not that old historically, and now holding a smartphone in your hand, think of how easy it is for someone in their couch while they're eating food to say, oh, she's pretty, he's not very pretty. Or someone on their phone to scroll through images of people, oh, he's really pretty, and she's not very pretty. We become so accustomed to talking about humans made in the image of God, the way we look at donuts through a glass. We actually need someone to wake us up and clarify the difference between pretty and beauty. Albert Moeller wrote, Christians should understand best that true beauty is infinitely more valuable than something that's merely pretty. Our eyes could actually be attracted to something as fallen human beings that is not beautiful. And in the opposite, in the prophet Isaiah, we are told that our Savior was not pretty. This is why, for example, Christian hymnody refers to Jesus as the beautiful Savior. Because we understand that what saves is not pretty, but is beautiful. We rightly sing about the old rugged cross and its beauty. We don't talk about its prettiness. Let us keep the two separate. All right, now we move to letter B underneath part two. These are the verses 11 through 15 that talk about a Christian woman's function, particularly in the church. Is it subverting or submitting to God's ordained authority structure? A book written in the early 90s that's been updated is called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. It's written by New Testament and Old Testament scholars on particularly technical passages. One of the passages is this one. Douglas Moo is the author. He writes in his introduction, The New Testament makes it plain that Christian women, like men, have been given spiritual gifts. And women, like men, are to use these gifts to minister to the body of Christ, and their ministries are indispensable to the life and growth of the church. There are many examples in the New Testament of just such ministries on the part of gifted Christian women. So to be true to the New Testament, the contemporary church needs to honor the varied ministries of women and to encourage women to pursue them. He continues, But does the New Testament place any restrictions on the ministry of women. And from the earliest days of the apostolic church, the Orthodox Christians have always thought so. And one key reason is 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. So here we are in the context of gathered worship. Let us look at what God says to us and hear our shepherd's good voice in verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly. It's actually an imperative verb, Manthaneto, so don't read the word let as if it works out for you. It's an imperative verb. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. The word quietly is coupled with the word teach in verse 12, and so the quietness is referring to the area of teaching, which we'll describe and define in a minute. But notice the manner is submissiveness, meaning submissiveness to the design of the Creator and what His intention is for His church in particular. Verse 12 continues, I do not permit, um, again, don't soften the words Paul is writing as an apostle. And again, this is still an imperative command. A woman to teach, we'll define that in a second, or to exercise authority, we'll define that as well. Those are clearly the two key words. The woman is not to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Andreas 
Kostenberger taught at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary for years. He's an incredibly competent scholar, and he and his wife, Margaret, have written a lot on this topic. They've, they've written quite extensively on the role of males and females in the home and in the church. I don't normally quote this much, but I, I need to today. If you can stick with me, here's their quote from Andreas and Margaret. Paul could have easily said in 1 Timothy 2.12, I don't allow a woman to be an elder if that was what he had in mind. If he merely wanted to restrict her holding the office of pastor or elder, but instead he said, I don't allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, indicating that it is those functions that God has not designed her to carry out, not merely the office in which such teaching and exercise of authority takes place. This means that in other contexts where the teaching of scripture or the exercise of spiritual leadership occurs, it should be carried out only by qualified men. They continue. The biblical teaching regarding God's design for man and woman has profound implications for life and ministry. Implicit in these identities, man and woman, boy and girl, and roles given by God to humanity, husband and wife, father and mother, son and daughter, is the expression of our maleness or femaleness lived out in communities and churches for God's glory. The full orb creation mandate for man and woman and its implications for masculine and feminine identity and roles should be a concerted focus of attention from the pulpit and should be upheld in our churches as beautiful, worthy, and desirable. Doctrinal instruction on these matters and mentoring in male and female roles should be an essential part of our ongoing discipleship and life of worship. And to Andreas and Margaret, I say... Amen. Now, the two words that have to be defined are teach and exercise authority. There, there are only two words in Greek, though three in English. Let me take a minute on both. First, the word teach. Well, if you started with the most respected Greek lexicon, bedagged, it describes teach this way. It means to provide instruction in a formal or informal setting. Well, that definition is rather broad, is it not? And so some have tried to say, well, no, 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 it can't be that broad. It must be very, very narrow. A good scholarly example of that is John Dixon. He wrote a book called Hearing Her Voice, A Biblical Invitation for Women to Preach in 2014. In his book, he argues that the word teach only means to preserve the tradition handed down by the apostles. In other words, he argues quite seriously that the word teach does not mean teach, that no instruction happens at all. It merely means to continue to preserve what is being passed down to you. John Dixon writes that in a very serious and academic way. Now, the word teach, let me just remind you this morning, has never been understood in the history of church that narrowly. The oldest document in church history we have is called the Didache, which describes the word teach repeatedly in the first century. No one in the church understood it that way. The very first time this passage was understood to mean something different was in 1969. Bob Yarborough has shown that in his scholarship. The very first time an evangelical ever said this passage wasn't true it was 1985, and that was Paul Jewett who taught at Harvard. So for 2,000 years, no one has ever understood this text to not mean what it says until very, very recently, historically. More importantly, though, how is the word teach used in the Bible? Well, in the Old Testament, it's not used as restrictively as John is talking about, and in the New Testament, it is never used that restrictively as well. Kevin DeYoung helps. He writes, one does not have to use the word didasco, which is teach, with a three-point sermon to show that it is surely more than just handing down what's been passed to you, and you could never hand down what's been passed to you apart from biblical exposition. Douglas Moo is worth quoting again. He writes, in the pastoral epistles, the word teach always has the sense of authoritative doctrinal instruction. R. Kent Hughes writes, the word teach in all of its forms, and here's the Greek, didaskain, didaskala, and didaskalos, is used in the New Testament to describe the careful and authoritative instruction of biblical truth. So the word teach is actually always referred to authoritative public instruction of the Bible. That is what the word teach means. Now surely to teach is authoritative since we're teaching God's authoritative word. This is precisely the burden that God has not waited on women. 
Now, the second word is exercise authority. Some argue that this is merely a negative term, that Paul is saying that he forbids women from being domineering or from being lording over. But the word actually never has that negative term. It has a neutral sense in the Bible. It simply means to exercise authority or dominion. Others have tried to argue grammatically for what's called a hendiadis, and I'm sorry I'm being so technical, but I just have to this morning. A hendiadis is when two different words are actually only describing one phenomenon. In other words, they argue, well, teach and exercise authority are not different things. They're just one thing. All that Paul is saying is that a woman should not teach in an authoritative way. And now surely there's overlap because teach is authoritative, but actually these are two different things. Grammatically, the word ude in Greek makes that clear. It's impossible that these would be one description. They are two different ones. They overlap, but they're two distinct things. They are not to teach nor to exercise authority. Now the arguments against are many. Some people have argued, well, Paul is just wrong. Paul Jewett did that in 1975. He was the only evangelical in history to do that, to argue, I'm a Christian, but I think Paul is just wrong. Most people don't take that very seriously. Others try to argue that Paul is simply dealing with something that was going on in Ephesus, something happening culturally, but something that surely doesn't apply to us today. But as we're about to see in verses 13, 14, and 15, Paul grounds his command in creation, in Adam and Eve. That's obviously not culturally restricted. A third thing people have tried to do is try to say that, well, maybe the word doesn't mean what it said, but we already addressed that. A fourth is people have said, well, Paul just says he doesn't permit, which, which maybe means it's not his preference, but we already explained that's not the grammar. A fifth thing people have tried to do is say, well, maybe the word women only means married women, but that argument is so not taken seriously that people don't even try that one anymore. And the sixth and most common rebuttal is to take Galatians 3.28 that says that in Christ there is neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. And on the basis of that verse, people argue, you see, there is no male or female in Christ. But obviously that verse means that in Christ we're all equal. It doesn't mean God has now eliminated the genders. So this passage, without question, means the following things. And here I have four points, and I've tried to write these very carefully. Number one. God has tasked men with the burden of leading his church. I don't want to bemoan or sound whiny this morning, but I just will tell you as a pastor and as a teacher, it is a heavy burden. It's not one someone should easily want or aspire to. James chapter 3 verse 1 says, Brothers, not many of you should be teachers. We will incur a stricter judgment. Don't you know God will deal more harshly with me than he will with you? God has tasked the burden and weight of such leadership on qualified men. Number two, God has gifted women to minister in the church in numerous ways. But in his grace and design, he has not placed that burden on them. The burden of exercise and authority and the burden of public instruction of the Bible was not pressed on women. This makes unambiguously clear that women should not serve in the office of pastor, elder, overseer. Now, chapter 3 will make that inarguable because it'll say the husband of one wife, one woman man. It'll use all male pronouns throughout the passage, but even from today's text, that's clear. It also means that women should not be in a position that are directing or guiding the church in an authoritative role, whatever we call it. Now, number three, men and women should admonish one another in all wisdom, Colossians 3.16. And men and women should instruct each other in regular discourse, Acts 18.26. Many sisters in this church have instructed me, and I need them to continue to in that sense. Number four, God has created both men and women to image him equally in value, but not interchangeably in function. Just as God works, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. God intentionally made two distinct genders that complement and fulfill and complete one another. Now, sadly, authority is too often abused. And sadly, men too often abuse authority. But those abuses do not negate or erase God's good design 
especially when it's practiced correctly. So now look in verse 13, as we see that God makes clear this was his design from the beginning. Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. The command of the creation order was the intent of God's responsibility in gender roles. In fact, Adam's failure was greater. Adam's sin was worse than Eve's, which is the point that verse 14 will now make. Look, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. I think we can say it this way accurately from the Bible. The world fell because Adam didn't step up. What the Bible is saying here is that Eve was deceived by the serpent when she told him to, told her to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and thereby try to become a god herself. But Adam was not deceived. Adam did something far worse. Adam abdicated his role to protect, to care, to lead his wife, which is exactly what God had put him there to do. Elizabeth Elliot puts this perfectly. She writes, The first woman was made specifically for the first man, a helper. God made her from the man out of his very bone and brought her to the man. And when Adam named Eve, he took responsibility to husband her, to provide for her, to cherish her, to protect her. It takes them both to represent the image of God. One, in a special way, the initiator. The other, the responder and complementer. Neither the one nor the other was adequate alone to bear the divine image. They were put in a perfect place, and yet you know the rest of the story. Eve, in her refusal to accept the will of God, refused her femininity. Adam, in his capitulation to her suggestion, abdicated his masculine responsibility for her. Elizabeth Elliot writes, It was the first instance of what we would now recognize as a role reversal. This defiant disobedience ruined the original pattern and things have been an awful mess ever since. Remember, after Adam abdicated his responsibility, whom did he blame? His wife. What a failure. We're not surprised then to read in Romans 5, when Adam sinned, we sinned all. And under Adam, we have all fallen And yet, God is so good, there is hope. So look in verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This verse is considered one of the most confusing in the New Testament, and it's one of the most debated among scholars. What could it possibly mean? I'll tell you the three prevailing opinions, then I'm going to put my flag down on the one that I think is correct. One opinion is that it means that you literally earn your salvation through having children. I hope we all know that that's ridiculously false and does not at all fit what the gospel tells us. We were saved by grace through faith in Christ. The second prevailing opinion is one that I'm more sympathetic to. It argues that verse 15 is telling us that when men live as men and women live as women, when women do what they have been designed to do uniquely, bear children and fulfill their role, and when the gender roles fulfill what they were designed to do, then things work the way they're supposed to. I'm sympathetic to that reading, but I don't think it actually holds up grammatically. So I'll tell you what I think is the correct reading. The grammar here actually has an article that isn't translated by the ESV. The text doesn't actually say saved through childbearing. It says saved through the birth of the child, which makes it much more clear, does it not? Also, the word sozo, which is translated saved, is used 31 times by Paul. Never, ever, ever once of those 31 does he ever use it to describe physical deliverance of anything. He always uses it all 31 times to describe eternal salvation and spiritual life. Thus now the text is more clear, is it not? We are saved through the birth of the child. Which child? The one Genesis 3:15 and 16 was promised to Eve. She would have a child who would crush the snake's head, though the snake would only bruise his heel. That, of course, refers to Jesus on the cross, destroying Satan and all of his powers. Don't you have better appreciation now for Matthew 1, when the angel tells Mary, you will bear a son, 
you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This passage is referring to the Savior that was referred to in verse 5 and 6, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. In fact, verse 15, the one we're in, those phrases faith and love and holiness and self-control are often used as shorthand for Christian living, Christianity. See, in order for us to embrace what is so difficult to hear in our, in our zeitgeist, we have to see Jesus. Remember Jesus' position in the own Godhead in the Trinity. He is second. He is the Son. He submitted himself. 1 Corinthians 11 says the head of Christ is God. In obedience, he fulfilled his God-ordained role. And though he had power, he did not flaunt it. Though he had assertion, he was never selfless. I know this is hard for here to hear, and so I think Rebecca McLaughlin is worth quoting. She was first reading Ephesians 5 when she was in Cambridge uh, in her undergrad program. She earned her PhD from there as well. But Ephesians 5 says this, Wives, submit yourself to your husbands. She said, I was in Cambridge when I first read these words, and I came from an academically driven, equality-oriented, all-female high school, and I was now studying in a majority male college, and I was repulsed. Wives, submit to husbands? As to the Lord, you have got to be kidding me. I had three problems with these verses. The first was that wives should submit. I knew women were just as competent as men. If there was wisdom in asymmetrical decision-making in marriage, then it should probably fall on who was more competent, which would be me. My second problem was the idea that wives should submit to their husbands as to the Lord's. It's one thing to submit to Jesus, the self-sacrificing king of the universe. It's quite another to offer that kind of submission to a fallible, sinful man. And my third problem was that the husband was the head of the wife. That seemed to imply a hierarchy at odds with the equality of men and women's status as equal image bearers of God. She continues, at first, I tried to explain the shock away. I tried to argue that in the Greek, the word submit must not mean submit. (laughs) But the command for wives to submit occurs three times in the New Testament, and husbands are called to love, not submit. She then later writes, but then when I realized that the true lens for this teaching was the gospel itself, it started to make sense. You see, if the message of Jesus is true, no one comes to the table with rights. The only way to enter is flat on your face, male or female. And if we grasp our right to self-determination, we reject Jesus because he calls us to submit to him completely. And while Christians are certainly called to sacrifice in response to Christ, we're primarily called to accept his sacrifice for us. With this lens in place, I saw God created sex and marriage as a telescope to show us his desire for intimacy with us. Our roles in this great marriage are not interchangeable. Jesus gave himself for us. We follow his lead. She continues, I've been married for a decade. I'm still not naturally submissive. I'm naturally leadership oriented. I hold a Ph.D. and a seminary degree, and I'm the trained debater of the family. Thank God I married a man who's man enough to celebrate this. And yet it's a daily challenge for me to remember my role in this drama and to submit to my husband as I would to the Lord, not because I'm naturally more or less submissive or because he is more naturally more or less loving, but because Jesus went to the cross for me. You see, the heart of today's passage is the sacrifice and submission of Jesus. Jesus literally had all power, omnipotence. And he laid it down to wash disciples' feet, to submit to the Father's will, and to sacrifice his life for the undeserving. So hear this this morning. Jesus is not 1950s Americana gender stereotypes. But nor is Jesus the zeitgeist of today, because Jesus is not about self-assertion. Jesus is about sacrifice. So men, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Women, submit to the Father's design. Let Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane said, Father, not my will, but yours be done.
Philippians 2, Jesus, though he was in the form of God and had equality with God, did not consider that a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. See, it's not a question of giftedness. It's a question of will you grasp or will you give up your rights and yourself? See, men, if you will sacrifice and give up yourself, and women, if you will follow God's design, then God's glory will be displayed, and it has no replica in this world. Elizabeth Elliot, again, is worth quoting, the world looks for happiness through self-assertion. The Christian knows that joy is found in self-abandonment. Jesus said, if a man would follow me, let him deny himself. Let him lose his life for my sake, and then he will find it. And a Christian woman's true freedom lies on the other side of a very small gate, humble obedience. But that gate leads out to a largeness of life undreamed of by the liberators of this world, to a place where the God-given differentiation between the sexes is not obfuscated but celebrated. Where our inequalities is seen as essential to the image of God, for it is in male and female Male as male, female as female, not two identical or interchangeable halves, that God's image is manifested. I love the way Elizabeth closes. To gloss over these profundities is to deprive women of the central answer to the cry of their hearts. Who am I? No one but the author of the story can answer that cry. So this morning, let me remind us that it is better in the final resort to be thought ridiculous by the world than to be unfaithful to God. Today's passage is not about male or female superiority, and it is not about suitability for leadership either. I have four children, I have one girl, and I have three goofballs. (laughs) And if you were to ask me which one of those four I would want to teach would want to instruct, would want to lead, would want to show us the way we should go. It is a no-brainer, based on the early returns I have so far, that when it comes to competency and qualifiedness and giftedness, she laps the others, laps the others. So why? So then why would I raise her to follow God's design? And the answer is so that she could learn what Jesus is like. There is nothing like that in this world. The world tells you, get what's yours. God shows us, give it up and follow Christ. We cannot lose that. We cannot lose that. <laughs> and if today you're, you're thinking, well, Josh, what's the big deal if we, if we just join culture? What's the big deal if we go based on competency? Have you ever played Jenga with all the logs that go together? Do you know what happens when you start pulling them out? They all collapse Have you been following the news? We can't switch these things without collateral consequences. It's not about giftedness. It's not about how skilled you are. It's about trusting that God's design is always better in the long run and that Christ's sacrifice is what should define us. So men, let me speak to you as men. Men, for every male at a church in America, there are two women. For every male in an African-American church, there are four women. Shame on us. Nancy Gibbs wrote for Time magazine, From the 1500s until the 1830s, parenting manuals were written for fathers. Before that time, society all assumed that mothers were assistant fathers. Now it is assumed that fathers are assistant mothers. Men, if our church ever gets to a point that we don't have enough qualified men to fulfill the roles and offices, to fulfill the teaching, then we have failed. 
If in our homes, our children know that mom is the spiritual leader, mom's the one that prays, mom's the one that opens the Bible, mom gets them to church, men, we have failed. Our role is to not do what Adam did. It's to deny ourselves, to be present, to push away the evil one, and to not blame anybody else. To take the lead. This is a countercultural truth. In America today, we, we can't imagine that God would tell us how he designed male and female to work. But have you ever considered how narrow-minded we are? I was talking to a Japanese exchange student once, and I asked her, we'd, we had just gone through the gospel, and I, I just said in a very congenial way, what's the hardest part about the gospel for you to accept? What's keeping you from believing? And she said, I just can't believe in a God who would forgive people. And I laughed, and she said, why why are you laughing? I said, because I know you're not an American. (laughs) In America, we can't believe in a God who doesn't just forgive everybody and act like it never happened. See, our cultural background does shape the way we think. The truth is, we're we're hypocrites. We complain that God would tell us how males and females should work, while at the same time, we tell people on the opposite side of the world how they ought to live. Our blindness... And our selective hearing of Scripture is to our shame. This morning, if you're here and you're not a Christian, and all this sounds very difficult to accept, let me encourage you to look to him who did not live to gain power, but him who had all power and gave it up to save the powerless. Those of you who are Christians, let me encourage you to trust and obey God's word regardless of where the culture is. Men, be leaders who sacrifice your lives. Women, trust God's structure of leadership is not a diminishment of your equality, but for your good. Emmanuel, let us trust and obey God no matter how culturally difficult it becomes. Let's pray together this morning. God, thank you that you have designed males and females to image your perfect glory. We have confused those, and therefore we have dimmed the light of your glory. Should we not be surprised that the church is lost, glossed over, and many churches are half-empty? when we are so unwilling to display the glory of God through the design that you have actually made? How can we talk about a crucified Savior if we will not lay down our own self-assertion? We must take up our own cross, deny ourselves, and follow our good Father, trusting that He knows what He's talking about. Enable us to do that. And glorify your name through it. In Christ I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.